yeah, if you want to know anything more about our church, uh, you can check us out online at thetrinitychurch.co.uk. We put all of our sermons and things like that up there, and we've got information about who we are and what we believe and events that are coming up and things like that. Um, I do want to thank uh, everyone who is members of uh, Redeemer Church um, for allowing Greg to come and preach at our church uh, back in June. He came and preached as part of our First Corinthians series, and that was a huge blessing for us, especially as leaders of the church. Um, we were speaking about unity, and we've been talking a lot about unity, um, just as, as Mike was saying. And um, yeah, we love having um, pastors from other churches come and preach our church so that our members get to hear different voices and personalities and see that God's working through all different types of people. So that was a huge blessing to us. Hopefully, in some way, I can return the favour um, by being a blessing to you. Um, but we'll see how it goes. It's yet to be seen. Um, but yeah, I also want to thank you for this chance just to come and share God's word and worship with you guys. Um, I've known about this church for many years, but I've never had a chance to come, so it's a privilege to be here with you today. Um, we've been praying for you at our church um, for a while, um, and uh, every day this week I've been praying for you guys and looking forward to coming. So um, if you don't mind, I would like to pray again. And uh, if you agree with what I say, I would ask that you would say amen at the end of my prayer out loud, just so that we can hear the unity um, that we do have together. So let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for being so kind, being so generous, being so gracious and merciful to us. Yeah, thank you, Father, that you don't uh, give us what we deserve um, because uh, that would be a tragedy for us. But instead, you give us um, what we don't deserve, which is your grace, your mercy. I thank you that, yeah, you are... Um, a God who loves and a God who wants to speak to us. I thank you that you are actually here right now through the power of your spirit. You are here present in this room. And I ask that you would um, speak through your word, speak through me today. Yeah, Lord, we, we need you. And so, uh, yeah, please be with us. Please um, communicate to us what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, the title, oh, I just want to say also, um, I'm definitely going to try my best to truncate my sermon as much as possible. I'm not good at preaching um, short sermons, but I'm going to do my best. Um, but yeah, please have, uh, have grace for me. So um, the title of today's sermon is The Cost of Discipleship. 
as Mike read for us, we're going to be looking at Luke 14, 25 to 33. Um, all of my notes are from the ESV version of the Bible. So if you're using a different version of the Bible, um, I do apologize. Um, but this is what I normally use. It's what I'm used to. Uh, Greg, when he came to our church, preached from the ESV to be nice to us. I'm potentially not as nice as Greg, so I do apologize for that. But yeah, so we're looking at Luke 14, 25 to 33. But before we get into that text, I do just want to lay out some context. So Jesus was a Jew, and during the time of Passover, uh, the Jews would journey to Jerusalem for Passover, those who weren't already living there. And that's what was going on during the time that this passage is talking about. It was in the lead up to Passover. Luke 13 tells us that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And his message at these times was brazen and brutal, to put it lightly. He speaks of closed doors, forsaken houses, perishing prophets, weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Pharisees were acting very out of character at this time. In Luke 13, towards the end, it tells us, that the Pharisees came and warned Jesus that Herod was wanting to kill him. Jesus didn't have much nice to say in response to that. But chapter 14 starts by telling us that on the Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. So I want you to try to imagine the scene. They were having a meal together at this Pharisee's house. And the Jews, when they would eat, they would have very low tables, not like what we're used to these days. They didn't have chairs like these. They would often sit on cushions or low sofas that were strewn around on the floor, and they would eat around a very low table. Uh, the Bible often says that they reclined at table they would almost lie down, sort of leaning on one arm and using the other arm to eat the food. So they're all in a very relaxed environment eating together. But Jesus wasn't necessarily giving them the relaxed environment that maybe they wanted because he had lots of harsh things to say about the Pharisees. As I said, at this time, it was on the lead up to Passover and so there were actually, uh, history tells us that there were actually potentially hundreds of thousands of people coming into Jerusalem at this time for Passover. So great crowds of people were swarming around at these times. And you have to understand, at these times, the houses that people had, they didn't have glass windows like what we have today. They, they just had open windows. Potentially, they might have shutters or curtains, 
but obviously in the day they didn't have electricity like we have now and so they would have the windows open to let the light in and so these crowds of people that are around many of them have heard about Jesus heard his preaching seen him performing miracles and so these people are wanting to hear and see what Jesus is up to so they can come and peek their head in through the window and see what's going on inside. Jesus had a lot of fame and he had a lot of infamy at these times. So people want to come and hear for many different reasons. People who are lost, sick, hungry, poor, confused. Some people might be curious and just want to see what spectacle might take place. Other people might want to know if there is hope to be found in the message that Jesus brings or in him himself. And I also want you to keep in mind that Jesus created each one of the people in these crowds that were around. He knows them. He knows their hearts. He knows their struggles. He knows their sin. Just like here today, God knows every single one of you. He knows what you're going through. He knows your sin. He knows your struggles. He knows you because he created you and he is present in all places at all times. So you can imagine yourself there as one of the members of the crowd coming to see what Jesus has to say. However, you weren't invited to this meal, and Jesus was. So you don't have the best seat in the house. You may be looking through a doorway or a window to see. But you might catch some of what's going on inside. The Pharisees were in there trying to catch Jesus out. See if he was going to say something that they could hold against him. And you're watching all of this unfold. The chapter tells us that Jesus performs a healing while he's there. And then he starts telling his parables. His parables provoke the Pharisees regarding their problems of self-promotion, pride, pretense, and partiality. Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. He speaks to the man who had invited him there. He speaks to the other guests. But you're not one of them. You're not a rich, arrogant Pharisee. Maybe you're not even a Jew. Maybe you're one of the people in the crowd who is just a man with a family, trying to put food on the table, struggling along in his life. Maybe you're a woman who is a widow, just trying to look after herself, struggling with the taxes and the oppression of the Roman Empire. Whatever type of person you are, You've turned up there to hear what Jesus has to say. And I'm assuming that anyone who is visiting today wants to hear what Jesus has to say. I would hope that you are hoping that Jesus has something to say to you. The people there were maybe hoping that Jesus would tell them that if they followed him, they would find great wealth or victory over the oppression of Rome. 
maybe he would show them a way to live a long and happy life or a way to have better relationships with their family. Well, Jesus does speak to these crowds, and that's where today's text comes in. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, So imagine, he's there, he's eating with these people, and then the crowds are all outside, and he turns away from the Pharisees and goes to speak to the crowds. And it says, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Is this the way that you generally imagine Jesus speaking to people? This is what the Bible tells us. If you're a Christian, you're commanded to be an imitator of Christ. Is this how you speak? At the end of Matthew, Jesus commands his disciples to go into the world and make disciples. As a Christian, when you're trying to make disciples, when you're explaining to people what discipleship is, is this how you explain it to people? Do you explain to people that discipleship comes with qualifications, with a cost? Or... Are you just so excited to see new people call themselves Christians, become members of your church, get baptised, that you sort of sweep all of that cost of discipleship type stuff under the rug? Do you say, oh, just come and follow Jesus. It's going to be amazing. There's so many good things that come along with being a Christian. It's going to be great. Trust me. Don't worry about it. If so, are you setting people up to fail by giving them a false impression of what being a Christian is? Today we're going to look at roughly five points, starting with 
the three qualifications for discipleship. Number one is that you have to hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even your own life, as we see in verse 26. Then number two is that you have to bear your own cross and go after Jesus, as we see in verse 27. Number three is that you have to renounce all that you have, as we see in verse 33. Then Jesus explains what it means to actually analyze if you're ready to do these things. And he gives us two hypothetical scenarios to understand that through. A, he describes building a tower in verse 28 to 30. And B, he describes going to war in verse 31 to 32. So first we'll look at the three qualifications and then we'll look at the two hypothetical scenarios before we conclude. So, qualification number one. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, by a show of hands, who in here has read Exodus. Okay, so most of us. What about Ephesians? The first epistle of John? The book of Proverbs? All right. So quite a few of you are up to date on what the Bible says in regards to the clear and explicit commands to love our fathers, mothers, wives, children, brothers and sisters, and not to hate them. So then how is it that Jesus says that if you come to him, you need to hate your father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, and even your own life? Well, I think if we read what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 to 39, we get a bit more context on what Jesus means here. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Often, the Jews would use the word hate as a comparative term. What Jesus is saying is that if you love your father or mother 
or any of your family members more than him, then you're not worthy to be his disciple. You're to love Jesus so much that your attitude towards anyone else looks like hate in comparison. Jesus talks about divisions and separations within our families. And as a Christian, if you truly want to follow Jesus, you will end up in situations where you have to choose, do you want to please your family or do you want to please Jesus Christ? Often, it's impossible to do both. And Jesus says that if you want to be his disciple, you have to be willing to choose him. Now, for you, maybe it's not that extreme. But for many people, it is. Often people who come from Muslim families will find that if they decide to follow Jesus, then their family will completely reject him. They will have death threats. People might throw bricks through the windows. And they'll face all kinds of grief. And that's just in England. In other countries, it's even worse. In England, we kind of live in a post-Christian society. And the remnants of Christianity that are in our society prevent us from really facing the kind of persecution that Christians in other countries face. But in the future, all that might change. So you have to ask yourself, if you're following Jesus or if you're considering following Jesus, are you ready and willing to stand with Jesus regardless of what grief it brings to you? what persecution comes with it. Family are a blessing from the Lord. That's why in many parts of the Bible we're told about loving our families. But family has to be second place and Jesus has to be first place. And in a competition, whatever is in second place is always the biggest threat to what is in first place. So as Christians, we have to be careful because idolatry can very easily take the shape of a husband, a wife, a parent, or a child. Jesus says that to follow him is all or nothing. How much clearer could he make it? He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. To love Jesus more than your family could mean times where you have to dismiss what they say. They might object to things that you want to do for Jesus and you have to dismiss that and follow what Jesus says. But loving Jesus more than your family could also mean accepting your own family's call to follow Jesus. What if... As a parent, one of your children decides that they want to go and reach an unreached tribe somewhere in the world who's never heard of Jesus, despite knowing that the last person who went to try and reach out to that tribe was stabbed to death by spears. Would you be willing to send your kid off saying, you know what, 
Jesus is what matters, even if my child loses their life. American pianist, singer and songwriter Keith Green, one of my favorites, in one of his songs, Pledge My Head to Heaven, says this, I pledge my wife to heaven for the gospel. Though our love each passing day just seems to grow. As I told her when we wed, I'd surely rather be found dead than to love her more than the one who saved my soul. In the second verse he says, I pledge my son to heaven for the gospel. Though he's kicked and beaten, ridiculed and scorned, I will teach him to rejoice and lift a thankful, praising voice and to be like him who bore the nails and crown of thorns. As Christians, we should rejoice at the idea of martyrdom. We should rejoice at the idea of our loved ones wanting to go and put their lives at risk for the sake of the gospel. We shouldn't see that as a tragedy. We should see people who want to waste their lives living for anything but Jesus as a tragedy. And that goes not only for our families, but ourselves too. As Jesus goes on in verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So the second qualification for discipleship is what he says in verse 27, which is that you have to bear your own cross and go after Jesus. When the Romans crucified a criminal, they didn't just hang the criminal on a cross. They first hung a cross on him. The criminal had to carry the heavy wooden crossbeam out of the city to the place where they were to be crucified. They had to walk this treacherous journey knowing what their fate was to be. And Jesus says, if you're not ready to do this, then you're not ready to be his disciple. This is the calling of Christianity. Christianity isn't some social club that you join to make some new friends or to try and learn some good morals. Christianity is a call to die. A gruesome, bloody, gory, painful death. I've got with me a couple of copies of the Fox's Book of Martyrs, if anyone thinks that I'm being dramatic about what real Christianity is about. And I'm happy to give one to you to read and then you can maybe give it to Greg to give back to me. And if you just want to give it to someone else to read or whatever instead, then that's fine too. If not, you can just go online and there's countless videos of Christians being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. 
in the past 2,000 years, we have record of over 70 million Christians who've been murdered because of their faith in Jesus. That's more than the entire population of the UK. Christianity is no walk in the park. It's a one-way journey to the cross with no return. And to carry your cross is something that we all should be willing to do as Christians. But I don't think we all always take into account what it really means. To carry your cross doesn't mean struggling in life with sickness or poverty or the general struggles of life. People often describe struggles that they're going through as, oh, you know, this is my cross to bear. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. These struggles aren't exclusive to the disciples of Jesus. He was calling them to something very different. Carrying your cross means to deliberately choose a life of persecution for the sake of Christ. To be a martyr is always a choice. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you're not facing persecution in life, you might want to question if you are living a godly life in Christ Jesus. Because the Bible promises us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Romans 8 shows Paul quoting the Psalms in saying, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now I do recognise that obviously in England, not everyone who is following Jesus is going to become a martyr in, an, in the literal sense. But Jesus is calling us to die in one sense or the other. And this could be a death to ourselves, a death to our own desires at the very least. So ask yourself, do you agree with Paul when he says to the, to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you agree with Peter when he said that he's now to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God? You have to ask yourself, is that how you live your life? Not for your own passions, not for your own desires, because those have been crucified and instead you live only for God's will. Believing a bunch of information doesn't make you a Christian. James tells us that faith without works is dead. You could maybe interpret what Jesus says 
as faith without death is dead. If you're not willing to die, do you really have faith in Christ? It doesn't mean you necessarily will, but are you willing to? Romans 12 verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And we see more of what this looks like in Jesus' third qualification of discipleship. He says that to be his disciple, you have to renounce all that you have. In the New Testament, we see people literally leaving everything they own to go and follow Jesus. He tells people to sell everything that they possess and to give the money to the poor and to follow him. There was a rich young ruler who heard this and he walked away extremely sad because he was rich and he had a lot of possessions. And despite wanting to know what you're supposed to do in order to follow God, he wasn't willing to do that. It's one thing to want to live a moral life. It's another thing to give up everything you have to follow Christ. But I do want to say that potentially this rich young ruler was potentially wiser than a lot of people because he recognized that he wasn't willing to do that. And so he walked away. Whereas I think there are many people in the church who are wasting their lives coming to church every Sunday despite the fact that they're not going to be with Jesus in eternity because they're actually still living for themselves. Jesus says there is no middle ground. In Luke eleven twenty three, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. In Revelation 3, he says, I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus doesn't want half-hearted Christians and he's not going to accept them. Matthew 6 verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Anyone can attend church, live by a decent set of ethics and call themselves a Christian whilst still living for themselves. You can convince other people that you're a Christian, even if you're not, but Jesus knows who are his. And on that great day, the sheep and the goats will be separated. The ones who live not for their own will, but for the will of the Father in heaven are those that belong to Jesus. He says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But if you want an example of someone who did give up everything to follow Jesus, listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3. He said, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So the three qualifications for discipleship are you have to hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even your own life. You have to bear your own cross and go after Jesus and you have to renounce all that you have. So once you know that these are the qualifications, what do you do next? You have to decide if you're willing to do what it takes to qualify. In other words, you have to count the cost of being a disciple and decide if you're willing to pay that price. Jesus gives us two examples to explain this. He starts by describing building a tower. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. When people plan to build a building, they don't just start setting up a scaffold. They lay blueprints, they lay foundations. They work out what is needed in advance. They make sure that the ground is the right sort of material to be built on. They make sure they've got enough money to afford all of the resources that it's going to take. They work out whether they have enough time. They work out how much hard work it's going to be, whether they have the energy to complete the task, whether they have enough manpower. And that's what we have to do before stepping into a life with Jesus. You have to decide, am I really willing to pay this price? Because if not, you're going to look like a fool. Because it's not easy to follow Jesus. And when those challenges come, 
you're going to seriously question if it's worth it. As Christians, you have to warn people of the cost of following a Christian. Otherwise, you're just creating false converts. People who will hop into church and then will fall out of church when the going gets tough and will end up looking like fools. I know people who used to be in the church and now they actually find it embarrassing. And when people bring up the fact that they used to call themselves a Christian, they, they feel silly about it and they actually try to hide the fact and make excuses for the fact that they once called themselves a Christian. They say, oh, I was young, I got brainwashed. You know, I, was, I needed help, I needed a crutch to lean on. Then when I sorted my life out, you know, I, I didn't need to, you know, follow that delusion anymore. And that's what you'll end up doing if you're not ready to be a Christian. If you don't really think it's worth following Jesus despite all of the difficulties. Both of those copies of Fox's Book of Martyrs that I have, ironically, I was given by people who were walking away from the faith. And they said, oh, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, so you might as well have these books. I'm not going to read them. Despite the fact that the people who were in those books made a very different decision. So don't make a fool of yourself for no reason. Jesus goes on to say, whatever king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Excuse me. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Why fight a losing battle? You have to go into war with a plan. You have to go into war knowing that there will be casualties. You can't go into war and then when you start seeing people getting shot and people dropping on the floor, say, what? What's going on? This isn't what I signed up for. They don't let people join the army thinking that it's going to be all fun and games. They have to go through rigorous training in advance to know that they're ready for what they're about to face. Because it's high stakes. It's a matter of life and death. And Christianity is even more so a matter of life and death. However, it's a cost. And you have to choose, is it a cost worth paying? Famous quote from Jim Elliot, the missionary who gave his life for the sake of the gospel, who was martyred for the faith, prior to him dying, said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you know that by following Jesus, 
you will never lose him. Then you have to decide, is that worth giving your life for? When ultimately, you're going to lose your life one day anyway. In Mark 8, Jesus called the crowd to him with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So is Jesus worth it? Is he worth the cost? Is he worth giving up your life for? Decide today. If he is, then do it. Matthew 13 gives us these parables that Jesus told he says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, look at all that you have. Your family, your life, everything. That's the cost. That's the cost of buying this pearl. And it's an expensive cost. And maybe you feel like, that's just too difficult. You might even feel like, you know what? I, I do want Jesus. I do see the value of following Jesus, but I just can't live up to that standard. Even if I try, I'm, I'm going to fail. Maybe you're thinking, I'm a Christian and I'm trying to follow Jesus, but upon hearing these verses, I, I don't know. I don't know whether I follow these qualifications or not I don't know if I live up to this do I always put Jesus over my family do I always put Jesus over everything else well as Christians we're always going to fail but ultimately we're saved by what Jesus did because Jesus paid the cost Jesus was criticized by his own family and ultimately when he died on the cross, he was rejected by his Father in heaven. He died on the cross to pay for our sin. 
So he gave up his life. He bore his cross. When he said these things, when he said that people had to do these things to be his disciple, he was saying it knowing that he was going to the cross. He was on his way to be crucified. But he didn't do anything to deserve that. He was innocent and he died on the cross to pay for our sins. He gave up his life willingly. He chose to die as our example and also as our substitute. Throughout the gospel accounts, we see almost endless opportunities for Jesus to avoid his fate of death on the cross. But instead, he chose to willingly embrace it for our sake and to please his Father in heaven. Jesus, even coming to earth, meant that he renounced all that he had in heaven and became a small, weak baby, growing up as a poor man without all of the riches and glory and splendor that he once had. He renounced it for our sake, Philippians 2 says, For us to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus counted the cost. He knew what it would take to save us. And he went to the cross because of the joy set before him. He knew that by him dying on the cross, he would save us and please his father in heaven. He knew that by him dying on the cross, he would purchase for us eternal life. And so for us, giving up our family, giving up our lives, giving up everything that we own is nothing compared to what we get in return. Jesus, his sacrifice was priceless. For us, we're getting a bargain by giving up our lives because what we get in return is worth so much more. But Jesus, he gave up things of greater value than we could ever imagine. Because he gave himself. So, for those who are Christians here today, who maybe have lost family because of following Jesus, Maybe you are suffering persecution, struggling day after day for the sake of the gospel. I want to remind you of the words of Paul from Romans 8, 18 and 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is to be revealed to us. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us 
an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the cost of being a disciple is extreme, but it is nothing compared to the value that we receive in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. Lord, we are not worthy. We truly are not worthy. We did nothing to deserve even the chance of being your disciples, of being your children. And yet, you chose to send your son Jesus to die on the cross for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you went to the cross knowing the pain, knowing the suffering, worse than any death that any of us will face because you took upon yourself the wrath of God. All of the punishment for sin that we deserve, you chose to take upon yourself so that we could be saved. And despite knowing what that was going to be like, you chose to do it anyway. Please help us to look into the future and see that following you could cause all kinds of problems, difficulties, sufferings and persecution. But help us to look even further than that and see that the result of it is glory, that we get to be with you. We get to experience eternal life with you. Help us to recognize that that is worth it. Lord, help us not to live a half-hearted life, acting like a Christian, only to find out on that final day that we don't belong to you. But help us truly to give our all, to give everything over to you. Because you truly are worth it. Help us for the rest of this day to have a heart of worship to you, knowing what you paid for us, knowing how amazing you are and how much you've given us. Help us to have hearts of thankfulness, gratitude, and help us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.